This is Museum People, a podcast that celebrates individuals connected with the museum field by highlighting their work, passions, opinions, and personalities. In each episode, you'll hear stories and viewpoints from a variety of museum people, unsung workers to executive directors, volunteers to trustees, as they help change the world one visitor at a time. And now, the hosts of Museum People, Dan Yeager and Marika Van Dam. Museum people, welcome back. Hey. Hey, Dan. How you feeling? I'm feeling great. Excellent. Enjoying the summer. Um, Ready for another episode? Let's do another episode. All right. One thing that we should ask our listeners is, how do you feel about the different length that we've been presenting? Ah, yes. Well, if anybody is paying close attention, you may have noticed that the length of episodes in season two is slightly longer than those in season one. They tended to be uh, about 20 minutes long. And um, in season one, and okay, they're not slightly longer. They're very much longer. They're, they tend to be <laughs> <laughs> they're a little about, rambly, uh, almost 40 yeah. minutes, uh, some of them. But we were realizing, uh, based on some feedback that we had gotten, and also in our own hubris that we love hearing ourselves talk, that uh, it might be beneficial to allow our interview subjects uh, to have a little bit more time and to have us have a little more time to dissect what it is that they're saying so that uh, things aren't rushed. I like the longer episodes. I well, think you like hearing yourself talk, so. Right, right. <laughs> that's, the, that's what I love. Um, I, they're, the people that we meet are so fascinating. Yeah. And they have such great stuff to say. And, and I've noticed in the past we've had to cut a lot of the stuff just for time. Right. And we are not restricted by time or space. Right. This is the internet. That's, that's very true. And there are, there are varying rules and opinions in the podcast world. It's still sort of new. Podcasts are still new. We're still experimenting. So right. why not experiment? So let us know what you think. Right. Yeah. The big thing is you, the listener. Uh, we don't want to bore you to death, but we think that you know the, the stuff is uh, interesting enough for you. So let us know. We get a lot of downloads per episode. Mm. And I, um, I know that I listen and that you listen and maybe my mom. Yeah. So there's some people no, out there had. that... No, we have, we have an audience now. We have an audience now. So, Marika, this episode is really exciting because we're talking about the future. The future. Um, good. Are you optimistic? <laughs> Are you optimistic about the future? This is interesting because I had this conversation a couple of days ago, one with my husband, and he's optimistic about the future. But I came in the next day and I, I spoke with a coworker and I said, "Are you optimistic?" And we had a great conversation about it. And, um, I, I guess that I am optimistic, but I'm also a student of history, and I know that every time period has had its highs and lows, and there's there's a lot to learn from the past, and there's always been something bad going on, but there's also the triumph of the human spirit, hmm. and as long as that continues, but I'm also extremely worried about climate change. Yeah. Well, most historians that I know seem to be very optimistic about things, despite the fact that they write about all the chaos that we optimistic re- about well i don't know they're cheerful people anyway i don't see a lot of depression really? yeah <laughs> in, in, in history people i love that that's great yeah. wrapped up in their own little worlds um okay you took me down a path there i don't right. know where we were Never going mind. this is not a linear conversation i yes. don't understand Are we in the same room what's going on all right so right. there is this thing called the council of regional associations which really is a bizarre moniker i think for basically the uh different 
regional museum associations get together a few times a year with the American Alliance of Museums to discuss uh, subjects that are uh, common to all museum associations and hence museum people around the country. And we've been doing some collaborative work. We mm-hmm. actually have published now two national salary surveys, for mm-hmm. example, which are very useful to the field, and we're embarked on uh, yet another one coming up. And so we do that type of thing, but we also do just a lot of information exchange and the like. Anyway, we get together a couple of times a year, and I thought at our last meeting it would be interesting to ask that group for the Museum People podcast a question. And I asked them specifically, what issues are museums in your region wrestling with? Interesting. Let's take a listen. Hello, I'm Jason Jones, uh, director of the Western Museums Association, and I think the um, uh, number one issue that museums in my region are um, are wrestling with is um, maintaining relevance to uh, all the different communities with, that they serve. Hello, I'm Susan Perry, the executive director of the Southeastern Museum Conference, SEMC, and our biggest issue we're facing is diversity in the broadest sense, um, diversity of museum staff, programming, exhibits, and really trying to find museums where change is happening. Hi, I'm, I'm David Butler, Executive Director of the Knoxville Museum of Art, and I'm uh, currently President of the South, Southeastern Museums Conference. I have to go back to the relevance as, as, as the big issue, which involves sustainability, it involves funding, it involves diversity, but staying relevant is the, is, the, is the number one challenge, I think, for all of us. Hi, I'm Elizabeth Merritt. I'm Vice President for Strategic Foresight and Founding Director of the Center for the Future of Museums here at the American Alliance of Museums. If you went by press inquiries, I'd say the biggest issue facing museums today is selfies and selfie sticks. I happen to disagree with that. I'm going to phrase what the people who spoke before me said in a slightly different way. I think the biggest f- issue facing museums nationally is recapturing audience share. Uh, we're losing market, and as people age and the demographics of the country shifts, we're not capturing new audiences and increasing the number of people who think that we're really the greatest thing on earth. I'm Jennifer Adams. I'm Senior Director of Membership and Registration at the American Alliance of Museums. And, of course, we hear all kinds of issues from our members, but one that has been coming up recently is leadership development. Um, We have lots and lots of retiring directors, um, and our members are concerned about how they can help develop the, the younger generation and turn them into the leaders of tomorrow. Montelie Dagan, Executive Director of the Mountain Plains Museums Association, located outside of Denver. And um, yes, relevance and engagement, but unfortunately, the big letter B, budget. We are seeing historical societies coming under increasing um, uh, fire and losing budget. Call it the oil and gas situation, but we've got North Dakota's, um, Colorado, and, and now Oklahoma, who are in dire straits. I'm, I'm Mark, Mark Jansen. I'm a director of museum studies for the University of Central Oklahoma and president of Mountain Plains Museum Association. Um, and Montelie stole my answer. But um, uh, I would refer to it kind of as uh, in Oklahoma specifically and, and perhaps uh, uh, regionally um, uh, as sort of contraction. Um, we have so many museums, um, uh, so many little museums that are being forced to shrink or cease to exist as a result of budgets and relevance and a variety of different things. And we're seeing 
lots of these little institutions struggle and disappear as a result, and then we have to figure out what to do with them. Hi, I'm uh, John Lovell. I'm the executive director of the Mid-Atlantic Association of Museums, and uh, I would say it's establishing value. It's establishing value. It's it's uh, uh, having programming of interest and value to millennials and staff of color. Check, check, live it right. I know say I hides from the rabbit farm, yeah. I know say one love, one aim, one destiny. Hiya, I them say more. Every pass it them a short out more. And the dance floor and them a ball out more. And the dance floor and them a one. What I heard from these interviews is diversity and relevance are the big issues. Right. You know, what's interesting about diversity and relevance, though, is they're, they're so high and lofty, they're almost meaningless in they're some buzzwords, ways. They're spe- Yeah. What specifically about diversity is, mm-hmm. are we mm-hmm. talking about? What is it about relevance? Now, we've been chasing those avenues for some time. We as a field have been talking a lot about things for many, many years, and we're not doing anything about it. Are that you gets surprised me going. by this? Well, not really, but it's just, I like to see things happen. But like yeah. diversity, we've been yakking about this for 20 years. Oh, we need to be more diverse. And uh, and we're still kind of mucking around in diversity statements and trying to get people just to pay attention to it. And uh, Well, it, it is, as you say, we have to identify action. Mm-hmm. And that's hard because, one, identifying action is hard, but two, who has the time? Well, that's what I find, too, is that we go to these meetings, similar to going to a conference, all of us, and you get all charged up, you get all energized about, oh, boy, I'm going to change the world. Because you're focusing really on issues that are at 30,000 feet, and you're not, you know, day-to-day fixing the plumbing and whatever. You've been given permission to think about it. Correct. And that's the beauty of it. You've said that before on this podcast, of being able to sort of step outside uh, your day-to-day and think those thoughts. But then, of course, reality comes crashing in the moment you get back and you got to check those emails and you got to fix the plumbing and whatever and you tend to forget about it so right who has time to actually work on diversity for real uh you know even though you're really inspired by it and that really i guess in and of itself creates a an incremental process also whose responsibility is it is Mm. it the people who are working day-to-day in the museums or is it the work of you and your colleagues at the regional museum associations is it aam's responsibility Mm. Is it a global responsibility? Well, I think it's everybody. It's it's really what I am finding is that perhaps maybe because I'm more aware of it right now, but things like uh, the, the the grassroots efforts that are happening, Black Lives Matter, for example, inspiring us in the museum field, all the blogs, Museum Hue, Inclusium, the workshops and seminars and things that are happening. I'm sensing that there's much more of a grassroots effort to actually creating action and that's causing uh, uh, folks you know at different strata of the museum field to pay attention wow there's something there and i suppose it's uh, it's better late than never but i'm really gr- glad to see that things are actually coalescing perhaps because of some of those grassroots efforts we also have technology to thank to connecting yeah, us all, right. um, being able to share ideas faster and have a greater historical record that we can all access to see the work that we've done. Well, and it's the sense of urgency that's created through social media, I think, is a good thing as well. It really yeah. is. It really puts a lot. I mean, just the very fact, for example, that all of these shootings are now televised, you know, it's right. like, wow, this has been going on. We, we know for it. years. Yeah. Yeah. But now we got to do something about it. And uh, 
I think that that's similar to, you know, how can we take that away in the museum field? Uh, so Elizabeth Merritt, she's a rock star yeah, in the great. field. Yeah, she's great. Yeah. Um, she's an inspiration and a well-known figure. Mm. She's a lady who needs no introduction, um, but we should give her one. Yeah. Well, we were very fortunate to ask Elizabeth for a little bit of her time at the AAM conference, and she very graciously agreed to do it because she says that she's a fan of museum people. It's Listens, very kind. yeah, how do you like very that? Kind. Huh? Right, and uh, I admire her a lot because uh, she's got, uh, I think, a, a really different focus than most of us have as museum people. We're looking at our institutions that really you know small view of things necessarily we got to keep our eyes on what's happening in our institutions uh, but she has the capacity and the charge to really think out of the box she's looking at the bigger 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 picture mm-hmm. galactically almost and thinking ahead uh, to what might Uh, be happening in the future that is going to impact museums and that allows us to do a much better job at that you know two foot level as opposed to 30,000 foot level I think yeah exactly we have to take a step back and think about where we're going otherwise it's irresponsible we have to be responsible and think about our sustainability for our own organizations but also the field as a whole Right. Let's there's um, there's one issue that we hope our listeners will forgive us for. Um, yeah, let's set it up. A rule little. one of podcasts is to always get good tape. Um, but uh, we were at a conference in a very large cavernous hall, and we needed to find a quiet space to interview her. And uh, we went we went behind the scenes to the AAM staff lounge, which we won't tell you what was in there, but there mm. were like elephants and like <laughs> gold gold whatever i saw a unicorn in the corner it was was amazing guys that's what our that's what our membership fees pay for anyway we interviewed um elizabeth in there and uh, they were clearing away some dishes if you hear the occasional clank you'll know what uh, please forgive us they were trying to be very quiet but we invaded their space anyway let's hear from elizabeth from uptown, myself, up to the slum Every old man, every youth man Them I want more base to come I say, I'm more fire level I set it higher, we say, I'm more fire The Center for the Future of Museums uh, Sometimes seems as though it's a bit of a Wizard of Oz thing There's something weird going on behind the curtain And people want to know, what is it that the center does and really more importantly i think how do you how do you take all of the things that are happening out there Mm -hmm. and make a choice for either trends watch or even just like what what do we study what do we want to go after this year my job is made easier by the fact there actually is both an academic field and a professional field of future studies sometimes called strategic foresight, especially when people um, don't want to be called futurists if they think it's too woo-woo. I think it's great. So usually what I'm doing is using a futurist framework of looking at social, technological, economic, ecological, and political changes to look for two things, trends, things that are changing over time at a given speed, in a particular direction, in a way that is likely to influence our path into the future, 
and disruptive events. Things that suddenly happen are the kind of equivalent of headlines. You wake up in the morning, you see this happen, and you say, oh, wow, that could really change the world. Didn't see it coming necessarily, but it could change the world. So my process of being a futurist for the museum field, um, sometimes I use the analogy of, of being a whale shark. I'm a biologist, so I'm always using biological analogies. Whale sharks are these marvelous giant fishes that instead of being carnivorous just open their jaws wide suck in enormous amounts of water and plankton and filter out the good bits and so that's what my day is i'm mass i'm scanning and reading massive amounts of material on the web and in print looking for little signals as futurists call them of things that might be important trends or disruptive events it's also reading forecasting in other fields like about technology um, or about political forecasting right now there's a lot of that what would happen if this person or that person were elected president Um, and then I try and do the translation of okay what does that mean for museums here's what virtual reality means for the gaming industry what would it mean for museums what kind of response do you get from museum folks there's a bit of cognitive dissonance here because museums typically are very backward looking not well in, you know we're, we're preservationists we're history we're museums, history museums. Mm-hmm. we're you know we always we're accustomed to looking back do people look at you and say i get it There's a huge range of reactions. Um, It's funny you should mention history museums because actually I think sometimes historians make the best futurists. Thank you. I can hear applause out there. Yay! (laughs) That's going to my grant proposal. (laughs) Right. Right now I have working with me um, a fellow who has been placed with us by the American Council of Learned Societies, um, Dr. Nicole Ivey. And she's working with us for two years. Her background is as a public historian. And so I said, I will help train her as a futurist. And I'm just finding she brings awesome expertise and perspective as a historian because she immediately gets some of these issues of how this trend could affect the future because she knows how it affected the past. So I think actually historians are sometimes the the easiest people to get on board. Also, uh, scientists natural history people, because they're used to looking, again, patterns of change in the past. When you study evolution, futurism is really just flipping the lens and saying, so how's that going to change going forward? In some ways, am I going to get in trouble for this? In some ways, I have the biggest challenges with some people in art museums, because they see their economic model as having been very stable and successful for a long time. And now that we have such disruptive change in the past decade that isn't going away, it can be sometimes hard to challenge your own thinking and say it can't just be fixing the old model. It's not just it worked in the past, we can make it work again. It's things may have to be fundamentally different. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What did futurists say 50 years ago about what's going to happen today and how close are we today you always think of the buck rogers mm-hmm. predictions back in the 20s 30s whatever these sort of phantasmagorical yeah you know it's like oh man we can't ride yeah. <laughs> there are no flying cars mm-hmm. and whatever but overall like what how has the history of futurism evolved futurists don't actually make predictions mm-hmm. so futurists are there to help people imagine potential futures And if you're doing your job right, you're helping them realize that there could be a lot of different potential futures that are very different from each other. And then to help people think about 
the what ifs. So if this happened, how would I respond? If this is a, a, a future I don't think would be good for us, how can I keep it from happening? So it's not really a matter of we, we predicted this 20 years ago and it happened, ha, we were right. It's more because we helped fill in the blank, Shell Oil, imagine what would happen after we reached peak oil, they were able to adapt their business and start investing in you know, other more sustainable energy sources. That's the sort of success story for a futurist. One thing I remember hearing from you during a talk somewhere along the line was this cone of probability. Yes. And I thought... It's such a simple but brilliant concept yeah, yeah. that anybody can understand, and it was like this drawing that you did that took two seconds, yeah. and it was very though it had a lot of impact about what futurism is all about. Yeah, yeah, it's actually the cone of plausibility. I plausibility. Love it. Plausibility. <laughs> I love it. So yes, if you imagine along with the cone of silence, which exactly. I also like. <laughs> so the cone of plausibility. It imagines us sitting here at this point in time, theoretically able to really know what's happening in the world. You know. The truth, the truth is out there, and we can find it if we look. And as you go farther forward in time, you're less certain about what the world's going to be like. So tomorrow morning probably is pretty much like today, though as I remember I mentioned disruptive events, yeah. they can change that. So, for example, you wake up on um, 9-11, and you find that there have been terrorist attacks that suddenly changed the world. So there can be rapid change, but usually changes are slow and incremental years from now, it would be harder to say exactly what the world's going to be like, because you know things can change. Trends and events are disrupting our path into the future. A hundred, two hundred, a thousand years out, you're going, ah, this is the realm of science fiction. We could imagine We could imagine that people have, have been uploaded into a global cloud consciousness and no longer have physical bodies. So the cone of plausibility is saying there are things that tomorrow are really implausible, like uploading my consciousness into the cloud. Mm. But 500 years from now, yeah, I could imagine that could be totally plausible. And things are changing so rapidly nowadays that the cone is expanding pretty fast. So I like to use an example from Star Trek. Yay, Trekkies! They had a plot on Deep Space Nine um, where somebody had stolen somebody, oh, had taken their own cells and, and cloned an exact copy of themselves, which they then murdered and, and used it to try and frame somebody for murder. So they're, at one point, they're all standing around a vat of, of liquid where they're, they're growing this other clone to prove that, that it was this guy. And, and it's sort of like, well, that was totally impossible back then. Just last year, I came across um, a, a picture of somebody who had started 3D printing organs using human tissue. So now we're actually able to print things like ears or heart valves, or I believe people are already starting to experiment with printing some internal organs. Well, how long before you could 3D print a whole human body? Now mm. we're sort of beginning to be on the cusp of that being in the cone of plausibility. I have a friend who, who we, we had this conversation about the election that's coming up, and he said that it's, you know, whatever, he's liberal. And he said it's entirely within the cone of possibility that Donald Trump becomes president. So he does this exercise where every day he thinks two minutes about Trump's presidency and what living in a world like that is. Yeah. And, it, and it strikes me that we should also all be going through this sort of similar exercise about the future might look like this and how can we deal with it. And it seems like the future of museums, a role that they could play is help us understand and deal with change mm -hmm. just as a thing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the change may come, the change yeah. may be this, change yeah. may be this. But how do we deal? How do we get our board to deal? How do we get our work buddies to deal? And I, I think that is part of 
the reason that one of CFM's goals is to make every museum person a little bit of a futurist, to just incorporate a little bit of that thinking and that mindset into their work. Because you're exactly right. If we spent some time every day, if we spent some time before we went to the voting booth to say, what would the world be like if I did this, if I elected this person, we might make more rational choices. I was actually at a dinner the other night, or a meeting, just at the beginning of this conference, where somebody said, you know, I can imagine a future in which... Donald Trump was elected, and he looked at the budget deficit, and one of the first things he did was he said, okay, there are too many of these damn nonprofits out there not paying taxes. Every museum to be a nonprofit has to be accredited. That would be a huge impact for our field. It would be a huge impact for the alliance. And I think it's entirely plausible, you know, frankly, whether or not Donald Trump is president, because the federal government is under increasing budget pressure. They've already started looking at nonprofit status. A couple of years ago, the IRS went through the roles of nonprofits and kicked about 10,000 little guys off who hadn't been filing their paperwork properly. And I think the concept that the government could start start establishing a higher bar for qualifying for nonprofit status is entirely plausible. That kind of consideration can make it easier to talk to boards of trustees about why we have to demonstrate public impact and relevance. It isn't just being happy with our work. It's being able to say, we're good for society. We deserve to be a nonprofit because. One of the critiques that I've heard about um, Trends Watch is that the ideas get presented and then we don't know what to do with, with that information. For those listeners who are not familiar with it, Trends Watch is the annual report that um, CFM has been doing for five years now. Every year I pick five or six topic areas that I see really trending, and I say, what's going on in the world with this? What does it mean for society? What does it mean for museums? And I do say, what might museums consider doing about it? And then I always profile anywhere from two to six museums that are doing something about it to show that it's really practically something that can be addressed and is being addressed, not just something I made up out of my mind. We at Museum People are vitally interested in the nature of museum work. What is it going to be like working in museums in, say, 10 years? Some of the trends in our field make me suggest that the job of working in a museum in even five years, and because it's changing right now, is going to be much different than it was 50 or 100 years ago. And yet we have people coming into the field who I think their conception of what it would be like to work in a museum when they had became fixated on, this is my dream job, are rooted in the past. And so there's this this sad collision of expectations and reality that causes some of the tension when people get to museums and then are disappointed it doesn't work like they want them to. So one of those areas of tension and change is authority, about authority. Because there have been times in the past, in certain places and markets, where the museum could pretty much say, this is what we want to do. This is what we want to tell you. We know a lot about this, and the curatorial message is fill in the blank. That doesn't work so well nowadays, in part because people have so many sources of information. The museum isn't necessarily being used as an encyclopedia. Heck, the encyclopedia isn't being used as an encyclopedia. That's why you get on your phone and look it up on Wikipedia. It's more a place for people to explore and get have their curiosity sparked. It may be more important for a museum to intrigue people to 
inspire people, to tease people a little bit, to challenge them to find out for themselves, than for a museum to tell people. That's a real shift. Also, in terms of effective design of exhibits and having those exhibits integrated into an educational experience, we've moved from exhibits that in some times and in some places were basically created by a curator to a team-based approach where all parts of the museum, including marketing and including the education department, are involved from the very beginning to make it work. So 10 years from now, what jobs are created and what jobs are lost? Oh, I might... One of my favorite topics is projections of jobs that may exist in the future. All right. So I was just talking to a couple people yesterday about how an emerging title is being the director or or curator or coordinator of community engagement. So I think that is a growing role, is somebody whose explicit responsibility is making connections between what the community needs and what the museum does and about drawing on community resources to help the museum do its job. So that's a big one. As part of my work doing educational forecasting, I'm hoping we're building a future in which there is a broadly distributed, vibrant learning grid of resources that any young learner can draw on. So it's not just I go to school and that's where I do my learning. It can be I do some of my learning in museums. I do some of my learning in libraries. I do go to something I call my school, and that's partly where my teacher is helping match me up with these learning resources. I think an emerging role in museums could be a place where we have staff who can help both young learners and adult learners plot their own learning pathways. So we could have people who are sort of curating this learning grid and saying, here's what you could learn in the museum. Here's what you could learn outside the museum. We already have, here's a signal showing this could happen, at the Yerba Buena Center for the Arts. They have a program called YBCAU, sort of a little pun, because you is both you as a person and you as a university, where you can get a personal art mentor who helps you establish your learning objectives and then find what you want to do in or out of the museum, who you can get together with, programs you might want to take. That's exactly this kind of learning resources mapper. Somewhere along the line, there was a a telegraph operator's school or something, and there was, during the transition of the technology, somebody that went to school, and then the next year, there are no more telegraph operators. So what jobs should people that are thinking of entering the field right now stay away from? What do you think they are, Dan? A job that won't exist anymore? Curation is something that's very interesting to me because uh, the pendulum is swinging kind of wildly about crowdsourcing and then back to, no, we need museums to curate. And I think the nature of curation is changing to the degree that we need curation of information But the crowdsourcing mentality is here to stay in some ways, and that is when a visitor goes in, they sort of are demanding that they are able to process their own information, but there's a sense of finding a balance. Now, how curation evolves is going to be an interesting thing. I agree with you, though. I have have another take on it to add to that, which is curators as experts are not supplanted by crowdsourcing. Crowdsourcing can do a couple of great things. It can make people feel they have the opportunity to contribute, and they can. Sometimes when that contribution is, um, here's my stuff, here's something I would like to see, that's one way. They also know things we don't know, like crowdsourcing projects that have said, we have a collection of historic photographs of this neighborhood. We're never going to figure out what these buildings were, these people were. You guys out there might recognize your grandfather or, or the house that your mom grew up in. So you know things we don't, and you're actually contributing solid information we need. But 
if you look at the curator as expert, why should they be limited to one museum? We're doing a fabulous job of digitizing resources, getting them up on the web, making them open source. And the more that a collections are a shared global resource, the more able it is for an expert to really know the collections of a number of institutions and make connections and links and do sort of global curation around it. So instead of, oh, you know, we have a curator of this and a curator of that, and we'd love to add a third curator, but we don't have a money, the money, maybe there's going to be this national or global pool of curators who work at a number of institutions. The gig economy will make a difference in that realm. And I often think back to something that NEMA did a few years ago, the Museums, Inc., where we thought about museums as, as one big museum, and we had all these different branches. And I don't know, I'm a middle child. Like I love the idea of everyone working together. And I've worked at so many small places where I just don't understand why we are not mm-hmm. working more closely together. Mm-hmm. I wonder if that's an option for the future, if you see that. I'm seeing a lot of people pushing for that. Even just at this meeting, I've heard several people independently say that they wish that there were shared HR managers for small museums because so many small museums don't have HR specialists and they can both get in legal trouble, frankly, if they don't know the law, but they also could use expert advice in things like diverse recruitment and hiring or how to create inclusive environments. And it may only be plausible for that to be sort of the the field services equivalent of of HR. If you're in a really small museum with three full-time staff, you're not going to have an HR person, but maybe all of the museums in a region could share a pool of HR specialists. So it's going that way, for one. What do you see the future of museum governance being? I'm going to push that question up a level. I really am trying to think and read a lot about the future of nonprofits at all. Because when you think about it, nonprofit governance is pretty weird in its very <laughs> its very basis. And America, the more I've done a little bit of global work, the more I realize America is very unusual in the, the, the role that nonprofit sector plays in complementing both government and for-profit. And in most countries I've worked in, the government really does what a lot of the nonprofit realm here in the U.S. does. So I understand why it evolved the way it did. So there's community accountability, and there's a lot of opportunities for people to have input. But it's really hard to make it work well. The fact that we've been doing it for so long and nobody have the recipe of, here's how you have a really effective board. And it's, you know, just if you only follow these rules, it would work. Shows you it's fundamentally a really hard thing to do. I wonder whether both for um, policy reasons and economic reasons and these cultural reasons of the difficulty of making nonprofits really function effectively in terms of governance are going to push more museums to experiment with these new hybrid models of being um, L3Cs or B Corp social benefit corporations where you are you don't have a nonprofit governing board but you do have responsibility to fulfill a social mission and you have social impact investors who are going to hold you to actually producing measurable results to that end. What advice would you give to museum people to think about on a daily basis? To spend a little bit of every day thinking about that farther future and telling stories about what they want that future to be like. And then when they're faced with a choice in their daily work of how to spend their time or how to allocate their resources, think about 
the choices they can make and choose to put your time and put your money on something that gets you a little bit closer, even if it's only one step towards that future you want to build. In all of this projecting and thinking about the future, um, are you optimistic? Well, sometimes I get accused of being a pessimist because I can imagine so many dark futures and I'm gleeful about relating them to other people because it's fun thinking I'm not. But I think I'm fundamentally an optimist. And I'm an optimist for this reason. So I mentioned two forces of change that shape the future. There are trends and there are disruptive events. But the third force is us. It's what we choose to do. And I firmly believe that individuals and organizations and whole political entities can have a huge effect on the the future through our choices. And one of the reasons I love working in museums, one of the unofficial slogans of CFM is because museums can change the world, is I totally believe that's true. I think that our field collectively and individual organizations in their communities can make the future better. And what really jazzes me up about my work is helping people make that come true. I want a microphone and I want a mixed body and we say more level, more treble, more bass, more drum, up tone, down tone, hum as one where we have a more bass, when we have more sound, more. Elizabeth mentioned that historians make the best futurists and you were just saying previously how you felt that historians were optimists. What do you think? Well, Whenever you're an optimist, you have a warm and rosy view of the future. And I think that uh, I can see that, where you've got the idea that we've moved through all these terrible things and we learn from history and it creates a better future. You have to. Because I think that if you just got Hmm. stuck as a historian with looking to the past and saying, boy, we've been miserable to each other, it's kind of a a miserable past equals a miserable future, eh. You're not going to want to look at the future. You're not want, you know, you're going to want to hide from it. And I think that you know we really do build successful futures off of what we've done from the past. What about Elizabeth's goal in the Center for the Future of Museums goal of making every museum professional just a little bit of a futurist? At first, I didn't really know what to make of that. It sounds like a little bit of a tagline almost. Mm-hmm. And yet, when you really think about it, I think that what it means is that we or we should, in fact, spend a little of our time uh, lifting our head. One of my mentors told me one time that I should be spending, as the director of NEMA, now 25% of my time strategically. And I looked at him and I said, are you kidding me? How could I possibly do that? How could I be spending but when you're... Right. And yet I'm finding that that is just so true because as the leader of an organization, uh, you know, you've got to spend the time really thinking not just about the future, although that's a big part of it, but just, you know, what is it that's happening in the field? But as you know, my view of leadership is that all of us are leaders, no matter what your position. And so I think that every one of us, uh, no matter what job you're doing, should be spending a little bit of time thinking about the future and what things are happening now that might change your own life and the life of your institution. Well, change is scary, Mm -hmm. isn't it? And that's, of course, the only constant. And I think thinking about the future and um, just taking some time. I, I Hopefully everyone gets the weekly email mm. from the Center for the Future right. of Museums with great articles and some tidbits about how this may apply to museums. And I read that, yeah. and I'm intrigued by it, and I get some tips. And even if that's just your way of thinking about the future, just take 10 minutes to breeze through that, maybe click on a few articles and um, 
get to know what some of the future trends might be because that may strike you. You're going to be in the shower. You're going to be thinking about it. Yeah. It's going to be in a conversation with a board member. Who knows? But if you don't think about where the field might be going, you're probably going to be caught up in something you don't want to be caught up in. Well, I think the future is bright, Marika. All right, dude. I hold out hope. It's <laughs> <laughs> nowhere to go but up. Right. No, um, there's one thing that we really didn't talk about, this being a podcast called Museum People. Elizabeth Merritt is an interesting museum person. Oh, boy. Yeah. Yeah? She is. Yeah, and I think she's often identified by her outfits that are not typical that you see mm. at a museum conference, right? She, right. she has... Um, funky shoes and people are always asking her about her shoes and um she wore some great jewelry and she says that she buys it at museum shops which is great um and she told us a little bit um i guess off tape about her office and what she has at her desk and her toys and this and whatnot so um yeah i think that she's an interesting person as well as a very smart person and i so appreciate her time giving this interview and as well as all the great work that she's doing well there's another episode of museum people Thank you for your time and for listening and your great support. We still want to know what you think, so please send in your feedback. We'd like to know specifically, what do you think about the future? Yeah. I'm interested in this future idea. We need to make a poll. Yeah. Bright, not bright. Yeah. (laughs) Up or down? Thumbs up, thumbs down. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, everybody. We love you, museum people. Next time on Museum People. It not only talks about the the history of what happened to us, but how we're pursuing things today. I love museums. I can't imagine my life without museums. We are invisible many a time in our own homeland, and that is very, very difficult. Their their tagline is museums are fucking awesome. Yeah. Can we say fucking? Beep. No, totally we can. We don't have any sponsors. <laughs> <laughs> Museum People is a production of the New England Museum Association, which connects, inspires, and empowers cultural institutions to provide their communities with deep and authentic experiences. Have an idea or comment for Museum People? Go to nemanet.org slash museumpeople to provide feedback, get information about episodes, and learn how to subscribe. Thanks for listening. <laughs>